Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. If I was asked what part of a farming, grazing, or for that matter, any agribusiness has made money every year, year in and year out, for the past 25 years or so, I reckon there's only one answer, and that is fat lambs, or prime lambs, as we're told to call them these days. Today on The Grill, the lamb king, and you'll find out why he has this moniker a little later. For now, let's welcome on The Grill, the boss of Lamb Pro, Tom Bull. Tom, many thanks for your time. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me, Kerry. Tom, we often ask guests how they uh, cook their steak. I assume you're a beef eater from time to time. Are you in charge of the barbecue, uh, I, and, and what, what's the cooking regime? I do lower myself every now and then to eat beef as opposed to lamb. Um, definitely medium rare Scotch fillet every time. Yes, very very protective over the barbecue here. And, and do you, you must cook your lamb in a different way than you cook your beef, I guess? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we do a lot more roasts and different things, but yeah, yeah our cutlets, we like, a, we like a medium rare, we like a medium hot, there's... There's nothing better than uh, getting a bit of paper towel and eating them fresh off the barbecue, off the fire. Absolutely, and nothing like a lamb chop off the barbecue. No, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Tom, uh, your start in livestock as a young fella, cattle or sheep? Uh, interesting enough, I actually started in cattle years ago, but I actually have always had sheep since I was about 10. Yeah, I uh, started my sheep stud uh, at the age of about 11 um, and have basically increased our numbers every year since then. So who or what was the major influence as you decided to get into the sheep meat business? I think certainly the biggest biggest driver, I actually I just genuinely love meat sheep. You know, I love British bred sheep, always have. And um, I love I love the meat industry. I love lamb. And, and certainly my progression, you know, I left uni and went and worked in abattoirs. You know, really the driver for me was trying to understand the whole supply chain. And uh, I've been very fortunate to work at all levels of supply chain over my 20-year um, career in the land industry. You must have been a very inquiring young man. Was there any special reason why you decided at some time you had to become more or acutely analytical about what you needed to know about the process of breeding a better lamb? I think the key driver, I, I entered a very traditional sheep industry, which was really the lamb industry was... Um, it was a byproduct of the wool industry, and and probably the two things. There's a number of things uh, we've been driving. The first thing was actually having specialist systems. You know, systems that didn't rely on a merino ewe or a wool-based sheep to produce a product. So that's probably number one. Number two, objectivity. We were, you know, in the first across-block land plan analysis back in 1994, and we've been a driver of objective management now. That mightn't seem that revolutionary, but in sheep it was because, you know, it was very much a tweed coat um, showing sheep brigade. And, um, you know, all, you know certainly objectivity was a, was a four-letter word. And probably the last thing, um, we were one of the key drivers of hybrid sheep. You know, again, probably stemming back to breed societies and showing, um, we've always been a big driver of productivity and whatever breed that comes in doesn't really phase us too much. And I guess the, the obvious, the end game is profitability. Where did you decide to start by that? I mean, what genetic factor did you think initially, at least, was paramount? I think probably the key thing which we genetically tried to do, what we really needed in the lamb industry was an Angus cow or, a, you know, a British breed cow, just a simple self-replacing system. And that didn't really exist. So really for us, 
you know, our, our prime line maternal, which is our mainstream maternal breed, we've, we've got seven different breeds that we've added over time. Um, those breeds were added, you know, because of certain traits. And the beauty about the lamb industry, as opposed to the beef, our lamb plant analysis compares all breeds in one analysis. And that's fundamentally different where it's really hard to compare Angus and Herefords and Shorthorns in the one database. Once you get a single database that you can actually compare multiple breeds, you start making decisions based on profitability, not just what breed they are. And that, that was certainly a key driver um, of our productivity was our ability to compare animals across all breeds. So uh, I would imagine along the uh, alongside doing this process, measuring all those production data, that did you run alongside the available technology or did it... Did uh, technology have to catch up with your needs and demand? Yeah, well, certainly we'll. You know, we've been on the you know the front end of the wave with a lot of those things. You know, it was electronic tags, use performance data, genomics data, um, carcass data. So yeah, there's no doubt we've had a very good relationship with a lot of scientists over the years, and you know we've always been an early adopter of all these technologies, and that that's been a key, I suppose, a key reason we've uh, we've able to get the market share we have by simply, uh, you know, by embracing every bit of information and or technology that's really going to advance us in the sheep industry. Now, you mentioned, I think, the number of breeds you crossed. Seven, is it? Seven that you used or yeah, more, more than that? Oh, there'd probably be more, but, yeah, there's probably seven. But um, really what we tried to do was bring those genes together and then stabilise them in a breed type, which is an identical viable type. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we always said in the, in, you know, the sheep industry – in the future will be known by brands, not breeds. Now, it doesn't matter, what, you know, within marina, the merino industry or the pole dorsum industry, there's a thousand different types of sheep. And uh, I think really what we try to do is, uh, you know, use really what it came down to, there's two key types of sheep. There were sheep that had a lot of reproduction in the early days, being, you know, Finnish land race and East Frisian. And really what we try to do is combine highly reproductive sheep with heavy carcass sheep, you know, some of the white suffolks and, and different animals and try and stabilise them in one type so we can get carcass and reproduction and milk in, into the one package. A lot of breeds we've seen in Australia over the years, Tom, uh, were often regarded as the next big thing and very <laughs> they weren't. They were found out under Australian conditions. Did some breeds surprise you or indeed did some breeds disappoint you? You know, I think probably really it's really about genetics, linking genetics in the environment. Some sheep, even though they're high-performance sheep, you know, they're high-performance in a high-feed environment. When you put, say, an East Friesian, the East Friesian came in and really its origins were a milking sheep, but its fertility and milk was something that we've never seen before. But when you put it in a feed-limited environment or a drought, they fall to bits. So really I just saw an animal like an East Friesian, it had some really big strength. But it had some major disadvantage. So I used to say, all we want to do is take the engineer of the East Friesian, which is I used to call it a Formula One car, yes. and put it in a more robust package. And really what the modern prime line is, is basically taking that reproduction and milk and putting in a more durable package that can handle variable seasons and, um, yeah, and, and obviously um, a bit better at targeting high-end markets as well. Well, just comment on, I remember clearly when the Texels arrived from overseas to a lot of fanfare, they were extraordinary auction prices for a time and 
that's an example of uh, of a one breed that didn't take off as it initially uh, planned, or initially people thought it might. Oh, 100%. I mean, the sheep industry has a decade of new breeds that were going to change the world. Yep. And invariably, you know, you'll it becomes a pyramid selling scheme for a few years. And once you've got good across block data, you probably realise that most of them aren't any better than their current population. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's, again, coming back to the strength. Once we get really good data on sheep, you know, all of a sudden hype goes and um, it really comes back. They've got to stand on their own merits and... Um, yeah, the textile had some good attributes, but it also had some stuff that uh, the market um, didn't want as well. Time for a break from uh, On The Grill. Back in a moment after this quick message from our sponsor. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. You're back on the grill with uh, Beef Central, our subject today, lamb, and our special guest, Tom Bull. So you've come down to, after all this research, you've come down to the perfect breed. Is that the, the Hampshire down sheep that you've got so on top? We've got, we've, got a, we've got terminal size and maternal size, and that's a fundamental difference in the lamb industry. Because we get a high twinning rate, i.e. 150% lambs, we can use a lot more terminal size because... We only need to join a, a portion of our females to a maternal ram to generate enough females. The rest of them can be put to terminal size, and we have got a few. Um, really, probably 10 years ago, we really saw the opportunity for marbling in lamb, and, and we were one of the first people to really invest in it. Um, and it was it's not rocket science. We could see you know, the Wagyu industry was approaching a billion-dollar industry. You know, The Angus industry is probably a 4 to $5 billion industry, and we could see what was happening in the segmentation of the beef industry. You know, all of a sudden, you know, beef wasn't beef. All of a sudden, it was being graded. And um, all of a sudden, we saw those brands really become a juggernaut. So a lot of our work was really going, what genetics can we have to really push the outliers of marbling? And we not only looked at our own terminal size, our dorsets, looked at our maternals, but then we actually looked under a few rocks and looked at, well, what, what else is in the industry? Um, one animal I've always loved is a Hampshire down nearly become extinct because of its black face. Yeah. Um, anyone who understands wool and fibre understands that obviously the dyeing process, people just didn't use anything that had a black face. So a lot of those black face breeds, even though they had a lot of production characteristics, were on the nose because all of a sudden the risk of them contaminating a white merino fleece. So Hampshire Down, when we tested, um, yeah, the first one we saw was one of the top brands in the industry. And um, then we started testing more and more, and, the, and we ended up buying half the flock. Not all the Hampshire Downs had marbling, but they just had this really top end of marbling, which is the fundamental of our a lot of our terminal breeding programs now, but also a lot of our land exporting programs. I'll get to marbling in more in a moment, but I, can I get some fundamentals uh, in your search for the perfect lamb? How old before the lambs are weaned? I mean, it's usually about twelve weeks or so. Uh, that's similar to what you were. Yeah, answering? so the average. Yeah. Yeah, 12 weeks hasn't changed a lot. Um, seasonal variation, we can change that. But we are looking you know, fundamentally at sort of a 12-week-old lamb. So did any special feed after that or just onto roughage, et cetera? Yeah, certainly uh, we drain feed all our hampshire down lambs. 
Um, so, you know, we take a bit of weight. You know, two of the biggest determinants of marbling land is age and weight. So there's no doubt by increasing their weight, um, increasing their age. And one thing we also learn a lot about the Hampshire Down, land in a lot of our key markets, one of the biggest uh, barriers to entry, people think land smells. You know, for a lot of people that taste gamey, um, and really, when we started looking at it, we were discussing a lot about marbling. What we actually ended up just discovering that really smell and fat flavour was as important. One thing about the Hampshire Down, when put on 40 days of grain, it just had a subtle taste and smell. And it was more in line with what you'd see with high-end beef. And that's been a key driver, particularly in those Asian and American markets who are very sensitive to smell and and anyone who's grown up with lamb just doesn't really understand it because it's, you're just used to it. But so, there's no doubt when you go to yeah, some of those markets, it is, a, it is a key discussion point. Yeah, Americans complain about the smell all the time. I think they get mixed up with mutton, though, but it's another story. Look, uh, so, so 40 days you feed them on, on grain? What sort of grain? What's in the, what's uh, in the minute, Yeah, our grain-fed programs are minimum 42. Um, we can go up to 70, 70 days. Um, there's a magnitude of issue, you know, reasons of why we change it. But we, we have got a very consistent grain feeding program. Um, and I see really the lamb industry probably moving more towards that beef model with breeders and feeders and, and as opposed to a 45 kilo lamb getting slaughtered for a domestic market, those lambs going on feed and uh, more targeting, say, a 32 to 34 kilo lamb for that high-end marbling export market. I've always thought lambs were very, very hard to, to uh, feedlot. Uh, so in, in terms of feeding them, in terms of what they do with cattle, that lambs are particularly hard because they're so finicky about food. They'll just, if they don't like it, they'll just push it aside and not eat it all. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think once you take the merino out of the sheep, you know, you change, you change their temperament. And as you up growth rate, a couple of things happen. You know, you up growth rate, you increase appetite. You know, they're certainly growing a lot better, and their feed conversions are reducing. So. You know, feedlotting now for our, a lot of our clients is becoming a mainstream thing. It's relatively easy. Um, you know, we are seeing more concentration of the feeding sector, sector as we've seen in beef. But it, as the genetics have changed and the price points have changed, we're seeing, you know, what, 13% of Australian lambs now are grain-fed, and that's going up at a very significant rate. What does the marbling look like in the sheep? I can't say that I've ever particularly noticed it or bought it or noticed it. Uh, does it look it's no similar, similar to the, the marbling in beef? 100%. You can yeah. use the same grading chips. I mean, we've yeah. for years used, used a lot of the beef grading chips. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's no different. Um, different genetics, you know, their deposition of marbling will be at different weights. And certainly that's been one of our key things is working out what animals will deposit marbling deposits at lighter weights. So, <laughs> You know, really, sheep and beef aren't that dissimilar. You've got to remember one thing with lamb is we're killing them at very young ages. It'd be no different to trying to kill veilers the whole time yes. and get a marble product. So really, if we look at the beef scenario, lamb's been very much a veal product over time, lighter weight, more milk-fed sort of product, and that will still maintain a mainstay. Really, what we're looking to do is starting to feed lambs Increase carcass weight and more replicate a beef industry model with our systems. So what's the what's the average marbling? Is it three, four, or five, or does it get as far as eight, maybe? Well, well, interesting enough, and we, when we talk marbling in lamb, we talk percentage of marbling. So the the national average, which is the percentage of fat in the muscle, is four point two percent. 
You know, yesterday, our yesterday still averaged 7.1%, so not quite double. Um, you'd expect probably a high-end wagyu to be 20% Marvin, just to give you a relativity. So we're still not pushing, you know, 20%, and we never will. But, you know, when, because remembering we can't keep sheep for too long because of the teeth. You know, we've only got, we've got this ticking time bomb court age. Yes. So, you know, we've got to kill things within 12 months. Otherwise, lamb becomes hoggett and then becomes mutton. So, you know, our top lamb in yesterday's still was 10.1%. Um, you know, two and a half times national average. That's a very visible, um, you know, very visible marbling, you know, product. I reckon hoggets pretty good meat, actually. <laughs> Sometimes it's better than lamb, but that's just my own view about hoggett, and I'm sure it's shared by many, but we can't sell hoggett, can we, as a descriptive meat? Yeah, 100%. But at the end of the day, we don't, you know, it, the system works well. Yeah. Now, we, look, don't, we don't land things in over 12 months, and that's, that's why, you know, our say, seven to ten-month-old lamb, yeah. if we can get a marble price, that's fantastic. Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're back on the grill with uh, Beef Central, our subject today, lamb, and our special guest, Tom Bull. Um, where did you get the idea of marbling? Has it been done before, or did you lead the way? Well, I think we certainly, there was a lot of research occurring at that time. And, um, you know, so really for us, it was looking at the available research and probably then looking at the market. And it's a really simple thing, you know, that beef market has paved way with Wagyu and Angus. So all of a sudden, when you go to a chef and start talking about marbling and stores and different things, you know, it's it's been a very easy transition into the marketplace um, because of the work beef's done. So, you know, I really just tapped into a lot of re- pre-existing research and then applied breeding technologies to actually try and move the population towards a heavy marble product. Right. Uh, lamb marbling, of course, is, uh, is, it's obviously a... Um and an added expense, but there's a, a very obvious reason why you are becoming known as the la- Australia's lamb king, because the retail price oh, of your web, your marble lamb is a hundred dollars a kilo in certain places. Is that correct? Yeah, we've um, we've got a new product coming out which will go over a hundred dollars a kilo, and it's been a really interesting progression. You know, some of those shops we're in all of a sudden, you know, people go, oh, "You can't charge a hundred dollars a kilo." And I said, "Well, why are we charging two hundred dollars for wagyu?" Yeah, and um, you know. I think it's really, and I think more and more, you know, lamb needs to go in that uber premium segment. And there is certainly, you know, within all those markets, all of a sudden, you know, we're talking $100 a kilo for racks. All of a sudden, you've got $200 worth of racks on yeah. a lamb. Yeah. You know, it's big value-adding. So that's where we see that presentation. And I think where lamb, where beef's done a really good job within the big parcel companies and the likes of a range of valley, they understand the interrelationship yeah. between genetics 
feed and markets. And I think that's where land's been a little bit all over the shop. Now what we're trying to do within our land program is get consistent genetics, consistent feeding regimes, so then we can all of a sudden start getting some better consistency in the product. Let's talk about markets for your marble lamb and the good old US of A, where I understand lamb demand has gone up considerably in recent times from around 400 grams to just under a kilo per person, which is remarkable. And it's all done through the restaurants. Yeah, US has been a massive growth. You know, there's no doubt. I mean, we've got a population of 330 million people. You know, historically, that's been a very much an ethnic market. But all of a sudden, we're seeing lamb creep into mainstream society. You know, a lot of food service, you know, a lot of cool burger joints. You know, every every sort of chef seems to have a cool burger joint. You know, that Middle Eastern lamb burger with tzatziki certainly yes, taken off. Indeed. But also, you know, white tablecloth, you know, racks, loins, cruise liners, you name it. Yeah. Um, you know, top-end retailers, we are seeing a growth. And I think you've got to remember that lamb in for that U.S. market will probably be the Australian equivalent to quail or, or you know, it's, it's something that it's not on people's radar, but more and more people are understanding how to cook it. And, um, and, and that's certainly changing, um, you know, the marketplace for Australia. So is this marble lamb a market in the USA or even, uh, should I mention the word China? Are they prospects for sell, selling your marbled lamb? Yeah, so, you know, we've got, I mean, I'm going to US next week. Um, we've got lamb, we've, we've sent marble lamb in China. Singapore is one of our biggest markets. Um, we sell lamb to Malaysia, Maldives, Hong Kong. Um, and really, it's a pretty simple process. Wherever you see top end Wagyu pop up or top end Angus beef, you know we we tend to see you know very parallels in in market demand for marbled lamb. Uh, Tom, I have to say, say I'm getting hungry just talking about all this <laughs> lamb and beef. But uh, <laughs> uh, other markets are cut booming. On it's fair to say we can sell as much of lamb as we can produce in Australia at present. Yeah, we can. Lamb. One of the biggest issues with lamb. One thing we saw, even a couple of weeks ago, when we had those rapid interest rate rises, people tend to go back to the staples a bit. You know, all of a sudden, you know, they're not eating out as much. So lamb is a little bit sensitive to economic fluctuations. And we probably saw that more in the last four weeks. All of a sudden, there's a lot more lamb sitting in storage because those rapid interest rate rises, we saw, you know, probably a downturn in food service. And, as, and you know, people going back to chicken and pork um, cheaper protein. So, you know, land has got a massive opportunity. The strength of the milk dollar prices in New Zealand is seeing a lot of downward pressure on their production. And really, we, we've got the world to ourselves. Um, you know, with New Zealand flock continually diminishing. Um, but, you know, it, it is one of those things we are at Uber Premium. And as it is, the week downturn can see some hiccups along the way, um, particularly in food service. It's all good for the moment. It doesn't, now, I must mention a possible free trade agreement with the European Union, 300 million people, cashed up consumers, many of them actual or potential lamb consumers. The EU looks like it could be so important for ag in general, but for lamb in particular. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they say the key driver of your lamb consumption is households that earn over $75,000 combined. You know, and I know America's got 64 million people or households that earn over that. EU's got 43, UK's got 15. Yeah. And it's been a really hard slog because New Zealand's had 87% of the quota since 1930. 
And, um, you know, amazing that it's taken this long to change. And really all we're looking to do is change the, the, the UK part of that, the part of Brexit. So that'll be that'll be significant. Um, remembering it's probably not going to compete with New Zealand that much because their production is slipping. Um, but certainly, you know, that, you know, there's 15 million people on it, 15 million households that don't have a combined 75,000 in that UK market. And I think that's going to be very positive for Australian land as that starts to kick in from sort of 23, 24 and so on. And soon after in the European Union, we hope. Yeah, 100%. I'm not sure how that's going. I haven't heard good dialogue. But, um, yeah, I can't see, you know, while we're, we're persisting with these 87% um, market share of the importing quota going to yeah. New Zealand, um, you know, over 94 years or something. Tom Bull, the Lamb King of Australia, thanks for joining us on The Grill with Beef Central. Thanks, Kerry. I really appreciate having you. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.